You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast with your host, Don DiMuccio. <laughs> I can't talk like that. Well, all right. Welcome back to yet another episode of the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, episode 44 to be exact. I am your host, Don DiMuccio, and we have yet another great show. But first, before we get into it, I do want to give a shout out to a good friend of the show, David Hizeldin, a.k.a. Beetle Dave. He's got a great YouTube channel appropriately called Beetle Dave's Beatles Channel, where he discusses various pressings of Beatles and related releases while showing off his unique personal collection of rare LPs and memorabilia. Basically, it's record porn for Fab Four fans like me, and I highly recommend you check him out on YouTube. A link to his channel is in the show notes. And while we're on the subject, today we're going to talk to the great Earl Slick. Now, if you're like me and part of the MTV generation, and I mean back when they actually played rock and roll videos, you're going to remember his band Phantom Rocker and Slick. They had a few big hits like Men Without Shame and My Mistake, but he is best known as a world-renowned sideman guitarist who performed alongside John Lennon and Yoko Ono during the 1980 recording sessions for Double Fantasy, as well as spending roughly 40 years in and out of David Bowie's backing band, appearing on some of his most important recordings from Young Americans, Station to Station, and all the way to 2013's The Next Day. But the thing that won't be lost on anyone who listens to this interview is that no matter how impressive Earl Slick's career is, and it is impressive, he never lost his Brooklyn roots. He's grounded, he's super cool, and basically when I grow up, I want to be Earl Slick. Taking you nowhere Angel Come little baby Look at that sky, life's begun Nights are warm and the days are young Come little baby There's my fever lost, that's all What's I'm digging you see for little Last night they loved you, opening doors and pulling some strings. Angel, come up the baby. In walk luck and you looked in time, never looked back, walked tall, act fine. Come up the baby. How sweet will you pay me for a thousand years? Others won't put you in these Of a green car, 20 foot long Don't cry, my sweet, don't break my heart Doing all right, you gotta get smart Wish upon, wish upon, day upon day I believe, oh God, I believe all the way Under the shadows 
the shadows, one for the shadows in his golden years. There's my baby lost her soul, one time begging you stay for a little golden years. Let me hear you say life's taking you nowhere Angel Come up the baby Run for the shadows Run for the shadows Run for the shadows In these golden years I'll stick with you baby For a thousand years Nothing's going to chew in these golden people pay insane amounts of money to attend the rock and roll fantasy camp just for a chance to perform alongside some of the biggest legends of rock and to only briefly experience what today's guest has been doing his entire adult life as one of the most accomplished sidemen guitarists on the scene for almost 50 years now except he did it the old-fashioned way by earning a stellar reputation working in studio and on stage with david bowie ian hunter david coverdale leo sayer and perhaps most notably with John Lennon and Yoko Ono on what would be Lennon's last recording sessions for Double Fantasy and the posthumous release Milk and Honey. He's also had an accomplished solo career, including last year's release, Fistful of Devils. And if I don't shut up and introduce him already, he's going to come over here and kick my ass. So, please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Earl Slick. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for doing this. Hey, my pleasure, man. You're fresh off a rather special appearance uh, in Liverpool, commemorating Beatle Week which uh, reunited yourself with Tony Levin and Andy Newbach? You know, we were supposed to do, every year, the Cavern Club in Liverpool, you know, they host, they do a whole week. It's, you know, it's Beatle Week up there. Mm. And they have performances and speakers and people like myself that were involved somehow with the Beatle. And it's a whole week of, I mean, the entire city of Liverpool turns into Beatlemania for like seven days. And... Part of this year was that they wanted to perform the 40th anniversary of the release of Double Fantasy, which was two years ago. But because of the pandemic, it got pushed last year and it got pushed again. So we finally did it. We did the show at the Liverpool Philharmonic on the 26th, uh, like like a week and a half ago. Yeah. Full attendance, obviously. Oh, yeah. It was full. You know, the attendance was great. The coolest thing was is that to pull something like this off where you've got only three original band members and then you've got to find the right fit for the rest of the band and they really did so 
I mean, for me to play these songs again with uh, Tony Levin and Andy Newmark was, I mean, it was great. It really was. And then the the guys that we had in the band, they were they were great. They had it down. So me and Tony and Andy, we didn't have to really do much thinking. <laughs> now, the guy who did John, Mark McGann, was he the one who did the TV special years and years ago? John and Yoko, love yeah. story. That's yeah, him, th right? That, yeah. That's him, yeah. And he sang great. And you know what was good about it? Sometimes in, in these kind of shows, when you've got a deceased famous dude, you know, uh, a lot of times the singers try too much to emulate the guy. And right. it usually backfires. And one thing about Mark was he just sang the songs and he sang them great. And he wasn't trying to dress like Lennon or any, you know what I mean? He, right. he got up, he got up there as himself and kicked some good butt. He yeah, did a, he, did, he did, really did a great job. Was it filmed or anything? Because I would love to see it. It was filmed. I don't know what they're going to do with it. I'm still looking for the various fan cell phone clips, and there are not many around. Stupid question, maybe, but did you do the Yoko songs too? Yeah. And who sang for her? Oh, um, I can't remember her last name. Um, Argentinian girl, Estef. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot her last name. I just met her on this thing. Yeah, yeah. A and she did a great job. Really good job on it. Now, you were born and raised in the capital of the world, Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. Probably during the greatest period to be alive, at least from a, a music standpoint. What was your, some of your earliest memories of first hearing rock and roll? God, the first memories I have of hearing rock and roll probably was around my house when I was a little kid, you know, just on the radio. Yeah. My mother was, uh, she, I would guess you could call her kind of progressive because, you know, we're talking about the 1950s, late 50s, early 60s. She would listen to the rock and roll stations and mostly actually the country stations. Yeah. So I heard plenty of it as a kid. And there was a lot of crossover back then. You would have heard Elvis, obviously, on a country station. It's a, yeah, they, yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, you, we heard all of that stuff. And as everybody in my age group, my generation, almost every player that you'll talk to will tell you the same thing. The night that the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show was what got the fire going, you know, with all of us. Something about what we saw and heard on that show really did prompt us you know, all of a sudden, everybody wanted to be in a band, and that was that was my first introduction to wanting to do it. But I've been, I, you know, I'd heard it before that. I've been listening to it. Had you been playing, or was that that came after? That was later because it wasn't until I saw those guys that all of a sudden they had to have a guitar, and it took about four or five months of just torturing my father until he broke down and got me a Dan Electro convertible acoustic. They called it. I think he paid like 30 bucks for it. Yeah. And he gave it to me and he said, well, you're either going to get good enough or not, but it's the last one I'm buying for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way my dad gave gifts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and who was some of the guitar heroes, quote unquote, that you were listening to early on and trying to emulate to get your you own know, style? Early on, I was just absorbing all these different bands we'd never seen before. And if you look at it, 1964, most of what you would have been exposed to on TV and even radio was all coming from Great Britain. All of it was. I mean, sure, they were American artists, but the Beatles, the Stones, the Zombies, the Who, you name it. Yeah. They basically hijacked the top 100 sure. for a, quite a while. So I got to hear all those guitar players in their early stages. So early on. I mean, the first guitar players that really got my attention was Keith Richards and Brian Jones. 
And then yeah. Jeff Beck when he was in the Yardbirds, you know, and Clapton back then. So it was all in that bluesy R&B area that I really liked. I loved Cropper. I didn't even know that I had been listening to Steve Cropper and loving him for years because back then he was kind of invisible, right. you know? He wasn't like a household name like he became. And years later, I realized, oh, my God, all those looks I've been stealing from Sam and Dave and Otis and all that's all Cropper stuff. Right. All that Booker T and the MGs back in Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Green Onions is one of the first songs we learned because back then, everybody wanted to be in a band, but everybody was terrified to be the singer. So we did a lot of instrumentals at the beginning. Oh, sure. You mentioned Brian Jones. Vastly underrated as a guitar player. Probably getting overshadowed by Keith, but so influential. I think that time did not do a service to Brian Jones. Um, you know, his reputation back then, the kind of stuff that he was doing all the time, you know, not showing up for stuff or showing up completely baked when he got to the studio and which years later became normal. Uh, and I, I think that did tinge him, his reputation, which it wouldn't do now. Matter of fact, the stupider shit you do now, the better off you are, you know. Except he's too talented for today. You can't, you know, you got to be stupid and not have talent. That's how you get famous today. I, you know, don't get me going. I, exactly. Do I was not say that. get me going because I'll, I'll start naming names and we don't want to get into that. Kardashian? So, no. Oh, how did you that. know? You just picked it right. You picked it right out of my head. It's like, and God bless anybody who is good enough at becoming that famous and that rich. That in itself is a major talent that most musicians don't have. We can have lifelong careers, but we, you know, most of us don't have a Kardashian billion dollar business, you know? Right. And, um, and, and a business for, do, again, famous for doing nothing, just for being famous. Well, there's an art to that, though. You see, you can't, I don't discount that there's an art to that. That's got to be difficult to do mm -hmm. when you didn't invent something, you didn't create something. But you managed to be famous. You created yourself into this thing. Right. An image. Yeah. And that's the thing. Could, now we're really getting off topic, but in a way it is important to think, could a Beatles, could a Stones, a band today with as much talent as they have even get noticed? Or is there just too much noise now? That's a good question. And, and, I, and I've had a philosophy on that for quite a while. Life changes entertainment business reflects life whether it be movies television music whatever and as things change in the world and the country so does all the art forms they do they go with the times and at the time that rock and roll uh, was created in the 50s and then it took another step into the future with the british invasion it was timely it meant something back then there was a reason that I can get it. I have a philosophy about this. If you give me a minute, I'll Please. try not to. Uh, huh? In the 1950s, the country was not far off from where it is now, in a way, where we were so divided. It was the old generation against the new generation. It was the McCarthy era fear mongering politicians. There was hiding under your desk during an air raid shelter because we used to have h-bomb drills in yeah. school and the bell would go off and you go into your desk like that was going to do a lot of good but that's the world we lived in and the music that elvis and chuck berry and all these guys bill haley i mean uh richie valens if you take all of that music it was definitely so geared to a much younger generation of people who didn't understand or very much like the world that they lived in so there was their escape yep 
And then you get the Beatles come along, and that was like stage two of it, because the same thing that was happening here was happening over in England, but it took a little bit more time because they absorbed everything from here, brought it back to the UK, and created their own version of it. And that got us through X amount of years. And then that changed. Then the format changed from a 78 clay disc to a, to a vinyl disc, to a, a eight track, a, a CDs, on and on. And as that changed, so did the art form. So I don't look at it today that no matter how good you are, let's say, as, a, as the, the rock and roll that we knew, if, you know, try to put yourself in the shoes of a, of a 16 to 25 year old. Yeah. And sit them down in front of a TV and put on a I Love Lucy and see what happens. Because that, that show yeah. was people would gear their week to sit down with the family with popcorn and watch that every single week religiously like that. They like, you know, you know, uh, those two were like rock stars in that show, you know, Lucy and Desi. And it meant something, but it, to, 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 you know, somebody born each generation are looking at the older stuff that doesn't actually really apply to their world that much. So I don't see it. I just, I think that, that rock and roll number one has had one hell of a long run because all of the bands that were successful, the big ones are still touring. And a matter of fact, it's all the older bands that are filling up more seats and making all the money. Yes. Um, the newer bands, as the internet, actually once MTV came on the scene and oversaturated everything, then the internet came and that, that changed everything because before a real fan, and I used to do this, I heard an announcement that there was a new Stone single coming out and I would go to the little mom and pop record store every day and hound the guy. When are you getting these? Mm -hmm. When are you getting these? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, whereas now... You hear, oh, so-and-so's got a record, and if you happen to like the band, you'll Google them, you'll find them, you'll download maybe one or two songs, but you're not going to buy an album like, you know, a real diehard fan would do. And all these things adding up bring me back to the point that rock and roll has done its job, and it's still viable, art form, no doubt. But when you're putting yourself in the shoes of a much younger person from today, it just doesn't equate. I'm going to push back a little bit on what you're saying. I was born in 71. So what does that like mean? You're like 20 years apart. Right. I listened to the same music that you listened to. I got into the Beatles when I was eight in 79. Right. Hardcore. You know, I watched I Love Lucy. I got into all that. stuff. So how come it's so far removed today and these kids don't pick it up? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just I'm like the angry old man at the bar saying that. I, I get, when I was you know a what? Kid, okay. All disrespect not intended. Right. That's exactly what you're talking like. I that know. old man. Because what about Billie Eilish, man? She's got her audience in the palm of her hand. They True. love that girl. She's True. everything to them that David Bowie and the Beatles were to us. Okay. She means as much to them. It's their world. It's their generation. She's 20 years old. She got the balls to go out there. And as far as styling goes in her image, it's... It's different, too. It, I, I give her that. Well, well, so with the Beatles, you know. Right. I mean, with our age difference, I think you understand to a point how different the Beatles were. But if you had actually seen the reaction of our parents and to all the old people, and I'm talking back then, 30, 
They're, oh, I know. That was old. It was yeah. old, right? That was. Yeah. They, they looked at the Beatles. They were freaking out. Of course. They were totally freaking out, and not in a good way. And then the Stones came along, which was my cup of tea for real. All of a sudden, the Beatles started to become acceptable because the Stones were such bad boys, oh, you yeah. know? But, you know, um, the other reason, too, that you were still hearing those records... You know, by the time you were eight or nine years old, if you're listening to the stuff, it was still being played very much on the radio. Oh, yeah. Uh, some of the guys that were in the Beatles were in other bands. The Stones were still active. You know, it was still happening. I remember hearing Casey Kasem saying next week, the new John Lennon single right. coming out. Uh, Emotional Rescue was big back then for right. the Stones. Yeah, no, exactly. But also back then, you had key people. Murray Decay, for instance, who was a, a big promoter of bringing, he loved bringing over uh, British bands. Uh, Casey Kasem was another one. There was a DJ in New York named Cousin Brucey. I love who Cousin Brucey, yeah. Had the wackiest voice. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I forgot the, oh God, all Beatles all day was their slogan or something. So, but there were only a few of them. Now, if you go on the internet, there's like 60 million bloggers. Right. As opposed to three or four guys in each city where that were special guys. I remember there was a guy in Cleveland. I used to love this guy. His name was Kid Leo. And he was always at the cutting edge with the new bands. But these were individual people that actually you could see them. We had, I'm in Rhode Island. We had a guy, Chuck Stevens. Right. I know who you're talking about. Great guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so we, yeah, we had a good radio station. That's the other thing, radio. Right, there was radio, and now it's too easy to open up your laptop and get pretty much anything you want 24 hours a day. If you run out of shampoo at, at 7 o'clock in the evening and you go on Amazon, you might have a bottle at your house by noon the next day, you know what I mean? That's ridiculous. So you can get anything you want, anytime you want. And when music and art become that accessible, especially when you can listen to and watch a lot of it for nothing... It takes the monetary value. I don't think it takes away the artistic value as much, but it definitely takes away the monetary value. I know you have a new album, for example. Now, you get played on Spotify. What are you making? Zero, 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 point zero, zero percent? That's about uh, right. Right. Because to make money, you got to tour. Well, you know, um, a lot of the newer bands out there, and it's I think it's mostly the metal bands, they'll have these caravans where they have six acts that right. go out, and they right. tour everywhere. But these poor guys... They're, they're living out of their van. They're selling their merch out of their van. They're working their asses off. But whatever they're generating is probably just enough money to keep them going on the road because it's what they love to do. Right. But in this day and age, to actually have a band that sells that many records where it, it means the same thing as it meant before, it's another world. Exactly right. I want to get back to you a little bit. I feel bad. I'm sorry. I could talk about it all well, day. Well, that's actually an important thing to talk it about. Is. Because I, I I hear this stuff like everything sucks. Nobody can do this. Nobody can write songs. Well, it's the way you're viewing it from your memories of what really inspired you to listen to music. You know, so that's why I think it's important. Now, you can answer this any way you want. How did Frank Mataloni become Earl Slick? Uh, 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 which way, name-wise or person-wise? Like I said, any way you want. <laughs> uh, it's funny. The name came, you know, we used to do clubs. That's just another thing, too. We could make money without leaving New York City. There were clubs in Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens, Manhattan, everywhere. And we played cover band stuff five nights a week for years. 
And during that time, I had a band named Bojack and the lead singer, Jack O'Neill. You know, you're doing five sets a night, five nights a week of cover stuff. You get bored. So every night he would introduce us, the band, and we'd all have different names that he made up. One of them was the Earl Slick thing, and I ended up liking it. So I kept it. I saw an interview where you were talking about a certain accent in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah, the Oil and Earl thing. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, which you don't hear anymore. But That's like that, an Archie Bunker thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At that generation, pronounced like, you know, you'd burl an egg or burl water. So from growing up with that, sometimes I'd slip into that, yeah. which he and he was from down south and he just thought it was funny. So, you know, oil slick, Earl slick. And it, eventually here I am. Yeah, you're it's something I didn't know until very recently that uh, Michael Kamen played a significant role in, in getting you to your next level. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. Um, I met Michael through a friend of mine, Hank DeVito, who. Hank went on to be a very successful songwriter actually, and photographer in Nashville. He's written a lot of hits. Uh, I met Michael, and Michael would help me out and get me like a little studio gig once in a while. If I wanted to record some songs, he'd get me in the studio. You know, he became my mentor. And long story short, he'd run into David Bowie at the Joffrey Ballet in New York, and uh, David wanted to meet the guy who did the score, which was Michael. And Michael was there, and they had a chat. This was right after Mick Ronson had left the band, saying he was looking for a guitarist, and Michael threw my name in the hat. What did you have to do? Did you Was it a matter of auditioning, or was it just word of mouth? It was um, huh, It was an audition. I thought I'd show up with, a, you know, there'd be a band in a rehearsal place, and David, and I'd play, and blah, blah. Uh, that wasn't the way it went down. Um, I met those guys at RCA Recording Studios while they were mixing the Diamond Dogs record. So when I walked in the studio that night, the control room was pretty dark, and they just brought me right in the studio, and there was an amp in there that I plugged in, and a voice came over the intercom telling me to put my headphones on. So I did, and they said, oh, play along with these. And I'm going, what kidding? And don't worry about it, just play along. <laughs> what I didn't realize they were doing, they were playing me bits and pieces from Diamond Dogs that they were in the process of mixing. So I did that for maybe a half hour. And then David came in the main room and we sat around with a couple of guitars and bullshitted for maybe an hour. That was my audition. At the time, did you think, well, this is just going to be for the stage? Or did you know that this was going to be a, a long lasting gig? Um, as far as I, my view of it at the time, which was naive, because I hadn't been, I was only 21 or something, so I hadn't really been around the block much. I thought it was like, oh, now I'm in David Bowie's band, not realizing that's not the reality of sideman business at all. Can't be an easy gig with him. I heard you in an interview saying that you can't just work for somebody without having some kind of personal connection. You worded it like there can't be a wall up. I mean, to me, Bowie seems like he had a huge wall. But there had to be a different dynamic between you and him and, and him and the band. Uh, can you talk about that duality of the real Bowie versus the image Bowie versus the musician? You know, if you look at videos of him, interview videos and stuff, starting in, in, in the 90s, like the late 90s, you're going to see more of really what he was like, oh. especially as it got into the 2000s. Right. He was a lot more personable, funny, you know. Um, that wall... Anybody that does this for a living at, at, at a level up there, you need the wall. You got to have one right. because people will just tread and you got to be careful. So having said that, though, between me and him, there wasn't a wall. But I was always really cautious about 
not considering him like my best buddy. You know, I thought, you know, we worked together. I worked for him, even though we worked together. And we had a great relationship, a good personal relationship, as well as we had a great working relationship. But it wasn't like offshore that we'd be calling each other, going out for coffee once a week. You right, know, right. With that distance, I think that distance is what made us work better together. He's the boss. You're the workman. Yeah, of. even but, but, though. But not in a bad way. Not in, not in a bad way. He right. never He never stated it. He never acted like it. But when somebody is as talented and knows what they're doing the way he did, they command respect naturally. They don't ask for it. They don't push for it. And they don't demand it. It's commanded, not demanded. Got Two it. different things. And he earned every bit of that respect. So it really did help putting together what, whether we were recording or, you know, putting together a tour. Uh, it made it a lot easier because I never took anything personally. Ever. With In general, I don't do that. But with him, I never did. Yeah. Could he be tough? Yeah, yeah. he could be tough. You yeah. know, he, he was a no-nonsense guy. But the only time you saw that is if he had a really good reason. And I know it's a cliche, but he constantly reinvented himself. Was that hot on you as a musician, or did you kind of welcome that? At, at the beginning, it drove me fucking crazy. <laughs> it really did, because I'm going, okay, what, what kind of band are we this week, you know? Yeah. But in time especially after all the years that we hadn't seen each other and we started working together, I was it 99 or 2000, whatever it was. The first thing we did was we, we, you know, we started putting together a tour material. And after not being involved such a long time, it all fell into place of, of it, you know, and it made sense. And, you know, to do a two and a half hour show of such eclectic material, it's not easy to pull off. And somehow we did it. Was that Glastonbury? Was that part of that period or did that come later? Yeah, no, that was part of that period because oh. in 2000, we didn't per se do a world tour, but we did festivals and TV and we did specific cities. We did some gigs. And that following year is when we started touring heavy again, 2002, all the way through 2004. And that's the one where he said he was going to do the, the his hits, so to speak, and then never do them again. Yeah, that he used to say every time, that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Of all the stuff you did with Bowie, what's the one that makes you the most personally proud? Like when you hear it and you go, yeah, that, I nailed that. Uh, without a doubt, station to station. Just the way it all fell together. Because David wanted more of a hybrid between the R&B and, and the edgier end, you know, the, the weird stuff and some of the rock and roll stuff, which it gave me more room to be creative. And it was just one of them weird albums because he, he had no concept when he came in. Like when Young Americans, he said, we're making a Philly soul album. So it was obvious what was going on. Right. You know, with Station, it wasn't because we went in and not all the material was even finished. We were putting bits and pieces together in the studio. So the atmosphere was more creative that way. And it was insane. It was probably, it, without a doubt, the most insane record I, I've ever been involved with, just from people's habits, including my own. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Does cocaine ring a bell? Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't, this is one of, you know, those, to give you those disclaimers, don't try this at home, kids, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah, but the outcome on that record, without a doubt, had everything to do with how the coke affected what we were doing. Because we were young enough at the time to be able to beat ourselves up like that and still get to the studio and still make a really great record. 
But, you know, it, it um, the drugs definitely changed what we were doing. Sure. I'm not saying that drugs make things better because sometimes it backfires. In this case, it didn't backfire at right. all. Our work ethic was together. Did you know that Bully was sick? No, I didn't know. Wow. I mean, I knew that he had a heart problem, <clears throat> but we knew that in 2004. But the last time I saw him was when we were finishing up the recording of the next day, which was 10 years ago. And he didn't look as well as usual, but he didn't look sick. Yeah. So I just thought, you know what? The guy's been in here making this record for like a year and a half. He's got to be spent by now. So that's all I thought of. Right, but, right. you know, he could have been sick then. I have no idea. And I had no idea he was sick until I found out he was gone. See, I, I thought I was the only one because, I mean, I was shocked. I felt like I missed a, missed something, you know? I didn't even, I was sick. I, and here you are, you know him, you worked with him. Through the grapevine, nothing came out? Or uh, we, we had no clue. No. I mean, uh, I knew that man very well, and I know the last thing he would have wanted right. was that to become public. That last album came out, I think it was pretty much that week. Two days before he died was that album came out. That's it. And then... The Black Star album, which was done with a whole different band. I'm not sure if that was released a little bit later. And what about Toy? Where does that fit in? Toy is a collection of songs, mostly written at the beginning of David's career. Right. Uh, some of them were on albums before. Um, some of them never really saw the light of day. And he just wanted to take the old material and just sort of uh, readdress it and see what we could do with it. So we went in the studio and we recorded, I don't know how many of them, basically with the band that we had at the time. It's funny, taking songs that were written in the late 60s, maybe early 70s, that you could still make work with a different band. That's a good song. That's a good song, right? Sure. All right, I want to switch gears a little bit because I know you must be so tired of telling this story, but please. Tell me about day one working for John Lennon. Day one with John. Uh, the first day, I mean, I'd already been working with David and, you know, I'd been around the block a few times and I never used to get nervous and I really still don't. But that I did for that one. And I got to the studio early. I said, I'm going to get there. I think the studio call was for noon. I got there like at 1030 in the morning. I think it I get here before everybody else, and I could just sort of chill out. The Hit Factory, so, right? Yeah, the Hit Factory. And when I got there, it was empty until I walked into the main studio, and John was in there, which, you know, obviously I was happy to see, but that's not the first person I wanted to see because I thought, what if I just make a, a you know, yeah. get embarrassed or make an asshole out of myself? <laughs> and anyway, it, it turned out on that first meeting that uh, he says to me, at, I introduced myself and he looked at me with a funny look and says, you know, like we knew each other already. Because he's, you know, he co-wrote Fame, right. played some guitar on Fame, and we also covered Across the Universe. Both songs are on Young Americans. Right. And I completely had no memory of being in the studio with him, but he did. <laughs> so that was my first meeting with John Lennon, which he thought was quite funny. Years and years ago, I was lucky enough to interview May Pang, and she she's just a sweetheart, great person. And uh, she had mentioned that Fame and Across the Universe were done after Young Americans had been finished. So you know, maybe in his mind, he thought because you were on the record, he you know, does that make no, sense? No, they they were done at record plant. Yeah, but was and that after most of the album had already been recorded? 
Yeah, but that album wasn't recorded all in one go anyway. We we did that album in bits and pieces. Some of that was recorded while we were on the road. We'd okay. stop in Philly and take two days off or three days off and record and go back on the road. That's yeah. how we made that record, a okay. lot of it. So who knows why? Yeah. I mean, I, I just thought it was quite funny that, you know, of all the people and all the bands, especially because... Uh, back in the day, everybody had this special Beatle. Oh, are you a Paul guy or a Ringo guy yeah, yeah. or a John guy or a George guy? I was a I was a John guy, so he was my already my favorite Beatle. So in hindsight, it's pretty hysterical. I, at the beginning, it was embarrassing. I'm going, Jesus, one of my idols here, and I don't remember even working with this guy. This is bad. <laughs> to me, he strikes me as the opposite of Bowie in a sense that talking about Bowie had his walls up in interviews in the 70s and John seems very personable easy to work with oh no it was easy it was it was so easy uh it was akin to being in a functional band and I don't know too many bands I've been in that have been functional but it was very functional and easy to work with John one thing he did do that David started doing later in life was constantly cracking jokes all day mm. And his sense of humor was so dark and cutting. I loved it. I yeah. thought it was hysterical. And you can hear a lot of that on bootlegs. And, and yeah. It's great. It does. It, it seems like a very, lack of a better term, fun atmosphere. It was. guy that big can let loose and be cool and yet get the work done that needs to get done in a relatively quick way, too. It didn't seem like you were belaboring a lot of the stuff. No. I mean, we did it the way the Beatles did it to a point where John got to do a lot of takes of stuff. David was the opposite. As soon as we got through one of them that didn't have any mistakes, that was it. But it usually was the one because it was all about the feel. Same thing with John. As soon as it felt right, that was the take. But it didn't feel like work. And you had three guitarists, including him. You had Hugh McCracken. Yeah. Hugh had been around for quite a while. He was on Paul's Ram album. He'd worked with John before. Yeah. Um, How did you guys work that out with the three guitarists with very different approaches? Well, the idea when they brought me in was that other than myself, everybody else in that room were all the best of the best session players around. And I wasn't. I was a band guy. I was still playing around in band. And John wanted one guy in there like himself who couldn't really properly read a chord chart. You know, right. something that would add a little bit more spontaneity. But he still needed that really great band behind him that could read the charts properly and do all that. Right. And I was the one that offset that. On one of the boots, there's a funny moment where you mentioned a hammer-on, and you know he never heard that before. I don't remember that. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, when I did the hammer-on, he said, what? What is it? God, if I, if I did a hammer-on, it's got to be one of maybe two or three that I've done in my entire life. I don't do them. And then afterwards, he teases you, hey, hammer-on. Come over here. That's he's, funny. He's, yeah. I don't I don't remember it, but I don't doubt it happened. I got to send that to you. Oh, yeah. I guess. Yeah. It's great. It was smart of Jack Douglas. I assume Jack Douglas is the one who gave you the call to, to yeah. come to the sessions, right? Yeah. It was smart not to just have the same old guys. And nothing against Billy Preston and Klaus and all that. But someone like you with a young approach. That's yeah. another thing. You were young. I mean, did you... I don't want to say did you get it. You're not an idiot. But, I mean, did you relate to the material? Oh, Yeah totally related to it because basically they were traditionally written pop songs you know even though some of them were dark yeah i mean the the form of the music he was doing was very familiar to me well i meant lyrically i mean he's talking about family and children and homes and marriages and what do you maybe early 30s you know the way the way that he worded it at the time i didn't really think of it like that and to be honest i think 
lyrically, I didn't dig into that record until we had finished it. You know, there was too much else going on to pay attention to that. What kind of gear were you using in those sessions? I mean, did you have any effects, or was it just a matter of if you wanted distortion, you turn the amp up and let the tubes do it? You know what? I still do that. Um, I was using a Marshall. I think there was a Fender there I might have used. I usually used a, I used a 101 Marshall, and my 65 SG Jr. and a Les Paul, as those are the main guitars on that one. What's that crazy guitar he was playing? Oh, Sardonyx. I Sardonyx. had one. Very strange looking. Very. Yeah. He had recommended some of the studio tricks that the Beatles are utilized, and there was one that interested me, recording the guitar solo for cleanup time, was it? No, the one it was the one for um, Losing You. Uh, that one, and there's another one. Uh, yeah, I Don't Want to Face It, which came out on Milk and Honey. Right. They take two little Fender amps, little tiny champ amps, little 5-watt, 10-watt amps, and stick a stereo microphone in the middle of them. And both guitar players would basically play the same part at the same time. And it, it created something. It did. You know, because that solo that's on I Don't Want to Face It, that's actually me and John playing that together with that process. Is that the thing with the 16th notes? Yes. Yeah. It compressed the hell out of it. Yeah. Interesting. I know there were some early sessions with Tony Levin and George Small, as well as Tom Peterson, Bunny Carlos, and Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. Was that before? Or? That was before because Jack brought them in thinking, and rightfully so, that a, a good younger band to do the record that obviously understood the Beatles would be the right fit. But, you know, they couldn't help but sound like Cheap Trick. From what I understand, they broke the cardinal rule of not talking about the sessions. No, that wouldn't have that wouldn't have caused the problem. I, I, I mean, just from being around the situation, I mean... My thoughts on it are that, you know, it was very distinctively, a, a, you could hear it. You could hear Cheap Trick in there, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, and, and that's probably why he brought the session guys in, like Huey McCracken and those guys, and, and you know, Tony and Andy, you know, because the, the, the songs were so diverse that I think he, he really didn't need those session guys in there. What about the memories of the infamous and fabled video shoot that never saw the light of day? I think that what I'd heard many years ago is most likely what happened. I wouldn't say 100%, but John apparently didn't like the way he looked in those videos, and he got a hold of the tapes and destroyed them. That's the story that I've got, and considering that not one second of that film has been seen. Oh, I hate to contradict you. Well, I know what you've seen, and that that's not what was set up we had a full-blown video camera shoot in the studio it wasn't somebody with uh, a little baby camera or something it was the real deal so what you've seen that could have been somebody copied a little couple of bits of something yeah but you got to understand something we were filming for two days straight okay there's at least 16 plus hours of tape oh i wish that would come out because you know, i heard the audio from it there was a you know jack had i guess microphones going well, yeah, you would have heard the audio from it because the whole time we recorded that record, there was a two-track going that was recording everything in the control room as well as the studio. That's where all of this great stuff that we have now, all these years later, those little blurbs and outtakes and weird shit because Jack did that. was a great idea that he did that. Oh, God, yeah. Just historic. Yeah. So that little clip of John doing I'm Losing You, you don't think that that's from the actual... 
If anything, maybe somebody had time to copy a little bit of it, but okay. trust me, if there was anything more than that, come on, it's been 42 years. You don't think it would be released? I mean, come on. It's true. I don't know if it was his BBC interview or the very last one he did, but he was so happy with the band and the way things turned out that he wanted to take it on the road. How far did those plans go? Was it just talk? Oh, no. They were already on it. Um, I've got a poster here of a gig from 1981 that never happened. Wow. Love to see that. It's uh, something that I've not let loose anywhere, but it's a copy of a... Uh, God, you know, I got it. This is so weird. I've got it hidden in this computer somewhere in my photos folder. And I probably named it something ridiculous so that anybody, you know, I don't want anybody to find it because it is a poster for, God, it was a gig in London. Weird. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So, you know, they got that far. They were talking to promoters. They were setting things up. It was all in motion. It's blown my mind. It was in motion. It was happening because I had to work out a deal with Columbia Records, who I was signed to at the time, uh, because I owed them a record. And we had to postpone the record so I could do the thing with John. So we've gotten that far from my end. That's incredible. Was it going to be a tour of stadiums or was it going to be more of a arena? No, there were going to be, you know, it wasn't going to be stadiums like, you know, Dodger Stadium size. No. Right. More like um, Royal Albert Hall. I mean, that kind of thing, or the garden. Had any the, set list been talked about besides the stuff from, from Double Fantasy and Milk and No, nah, we hadn't gotten that far into the conversations. The main thing that was spoken about was, you know, finding out who in the band was available to do it. Because the plan was, is that in early 81, in January, after the holidays, we were going to go back in and record a few more songs and finish the stuff that became Milk and Honey. Obviously, neither one of those things happened. Right. And then after that, we'd be out on tour, and that that album would be released sometime in 81 while it was still out. That's what I was told. How did you hear the news that he'd been killed? Same way everybody else did, man. TV. Yeah. It was uh, a very weird time, you know. Um, even to this day, you know, I don't really think about it much, but once in a while it'll come up. And I'll think, wow, man, you know, but it, now it's so far in the past that it doesn't even seem real anymore. In yeah, a way. you're removed from it. You know what I mean? I am. Yeah. I mean, as much as well as I knew John and worked with him and did all that stuff, you know, and the assassination, all of it seems like a weird dream. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And I remember being amazed at the time that Yoko poured herself back into work, working on her first solo album in a while at that point, Season of Glass. You were on that, correct? Yeah. Was it the same musicians? Everything was the same, except Jack Douglas couldn't do it, so they brought Phil Spector in. And we were all excited about that until we started working with him, and it turned out to be the worst nightmare from hell. You know, Yoko wasn't stupid. She picked up on it. I think by week two, she got rid of him. And then it was just us. It was just the original band, Yoko, and the original engineer from Double Fantasy. Same studio, everything. Did I hear he was walking around with a gun? Yeah, yeah, Phil Spector's walked around the studio with one of them dirty, hairy shoulder holster things, you know? It's like, are you fucking kidding me? And he had, he had this bodyguard guy that if he had to go from the control room to the john, he had to walk through this little lounge area and, and the bodyguard would come and clear us all out of the room so Phil could walk from the control room to the john. Please. And, and 
It was the weirdest thing in the world. The control room was blacked out the whole time. I don't know how anybody could even work in there. And when he got on the intercom to talk to anybody about something, he would do it through the engineer. He would tell, it was Lee DiCarlo. He'd go, Lee, tell the guitar player left to play a G or tell the drummer to hit his bass drum. Never spoke to us. Everything was through. It was like, are you kidding me? What a, I mean, by the time, after the first week I'd had it, and by two weeks I was like, oh, I was so happy he just disappeared. <laughs> so who produced that, Yoko? It produced itself. We all did it, you know. Yeah. So after that, you're back with Bowie. Stevie Ray Vaughan had done the sessions for Let's Dance. Right. Were you close to him at all? Did you know him? Never met him. Never met him. And for some reason, he couldn't do the tour. Stevie's relationship with David was basically, he wanted to add that blues element to that record. And I guess somehow he found Stevie. That was the extent of the relationship because by the time he did the touring, I think that they couldn't come to proper agreements to get Stevie out. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen. Yeah. And I got called. That is a huge tour, the Serious Moonlight tour. That and was a huge tour. Now, around 85, Brian sets a splits with the Stray Cats, and suddenly you got Slim Jim Phantom and Lee Rocker find themselves in need of a band and a guitarist, I guess. Is that how Phantom Rocker and Slick came along? Um, Slim Jim and Lee both, they had a band with a guitar player from Chicago. And uh, they weren't sure if it was the right guy. Anyway, long story short, we'd run into each other at an event in L.A. and started talking. And they said, you know, you are, are you free? Yeah, I mean, I'm around. So we arranged a rehearsal place and we played together for a few days and decided to give it a go. It, it felt together very organically. And it worked. I mean, it was yeah. great. I mean, suddenly now here you are on MTV, Men Without Shames on heavy rotation. You went from sideman to one of the main men. How was that as a transition for you? It was easy because a lot of the touring I did with David all the way to the end, I had a lot of freedom on stage. So I was used to it. it you know, I, I consider myself at what I do best is as a sideman. I think that's what I do best. Not necessarily a session studio guy, but an all around, especially touring, which is what I love to do. So I think the fact that I love to do it so much and David gave me room to do it. When Phantom Rocker and Slick came along, it was something I was already doing with David to a, to a degree. I want to ask you about working with Keith Richards. I mean, that must have been phenomenal. How did that come about? It came about, actually, Phantom Rocker and Slick record was being mixed at the Media Sound in New York. And Steve Thompson, the producer, was in there mixing. And they had just done Dancing in the Streets with the Bowie and Jagger version. Yep. And Jagger wanted some other guitars on there. And Steve called me and says, they want, he wants you to do this. So I flew, I was in LA and I flew to New York. To, I did the session and uh, it was Mick's birthday. So I got invited to his party at the Palladium and I ran into Keith and we got to talking and said we were mixing the record, but we'd love him to play on it. And he said, yes. And he showed up. I was, I, I know what he's like because I've met the guy plenty of times, but you know what? The day that he did that, he was supposed to come in like on a Monday. He came a week later, at which point I had a commitment out of town that I couldn't not make. I, like one of my best friends I grew up with was waiting. I was the best man, and I was in the Bahamas or something like that. <laughs> oh, oh, sucks. You've played with some of the best, man. It says a lot about you more than anything else. Well, thank you. I mean, I, you know, I love what I do, and if it's, if it's with the right person, it makes all the difference in the but world. But you walked away from the business, right? I did. So timeshares or something? Mm-hmm. Felt burnt out? Or? Yeah. I just hit a point. 
it was that weird going from rock and roll to the hairband period was still kind of going on. And every project I put together, it just wasn't falling together properly, you know, and I was frustrated and I was starting to get resentful of the business. And I said, you know what? I told myself a long time ago that if this became this, I was at it. I was gone. And, yep. and, and I left for four years. And then what got you back in? About a year before that, or even, even later than that, uh, I used to live near David Coverdale. And we got together. We wrote, we were writing songs for like almost a year. And we went and made a record. We didn't tour the record, but that kind of gave me a bit of a taste for it. And I think about six months after we finished that record is when David contacted me. It's the end of 99. And you never looked back? Nope. You got a great new record, uh, Fistful of Devils, instrumentals, fantastic. I listened to it twice this morning. Two tracks on there that seem to be Lennon inspired. JWL and Dr. Winston O'Boogie, but JWL, what a dark Lennon-esque kind of sound. The, you know, that was co-written by Mark Hudson, so that should explain that if ah, you know who Mark is. Great record. How's it doing? It, it's doing all right. You know, I mean, obviously the record wasn't made for a paycheck, that's for sure. Right. Um, it was something that I just wanted to do. You know, and I still got another one in the can that I haven't even released yet. The next thing is going to be spring of next year. I mean, it could be stuff popping up between now and then. I'm sure they will be. But I want to get back touring the UK again because I had to cancel last year because of Lyme disease, of all things. Oh, and geez. if you live in the Northeast, you know what that is. Of course. And it doesn't go away very easy. So I, I had to bugger out of that last tour last year. So we rescheduled everything for this coming May. All right. We'll keep an eye on it. Earl, it was an honor to talk to you. Well, thanks a lot, man. Good questions, my friend. See, look, hold it. You can have all those holes slick. They're all yours. But listen to what I'm saying. A one, two.
From 1980, that's John Lennon with I'm Losing You featuring Bill Slick on guitar. And I want to give a huge thank you to Mr. Slick. Mr. Slick, what a strange. For spending time with us on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. And check out his latest album, Fistful of Devils. Links are in the show notes. Also in the show notes are links to where you can find the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, whether on our website at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. All typed out as one word, no abbreviations, spaces, or commas, please. And if you refuse to abide by this simple request, I swear I'll change the show to an all-polka hip-hop format, and I ain't bluffing, punk. We have some future guests in the works that will blow your mind, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and I'm going to leave you with a cut off of Earl Slick's new album. This one's called JWL. Thanks for listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast.